2: What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, El Conservador, Richie V, Mr. Call Screener, ya tu sabe, you know what's up, at Rich Valdez on social media. Make sure you get at me, you're following, and you're sharing this stuff. And I was checking out a podcast called A Deep Dive Into Critical Race Theory, and the guest on the show was a guy named Bradley Mason. He goes by at, also a carpenter on Twitter, And he had some interesting views on critical race theory, and I want to look at that through a broader lens of just the way that they continue to go on defense, which is a good thing. You know what that means? It means that we're on offense. We're telling them, hey, you know what? Uh, Americans that believe in a colorblind society are not standing for this. Moms, dads across America from coast to coast are going to their school board meetings saying, hey. We don't like this whole critical race theory thing. And we've been bringing you that week after week after week because I think that's important. That is the defining message of our time. If we're going to push back on this piece, we have to do it now. And it's working because they're up against the ropes and they're swinging. Now they're saying, oh, now all the Republicans are trying to do is uh, eradicate history and change things. Okay. So somebody tagged me in a tweet and it had a link to this podcast and I checked it out. And I didn't agree with most of it, but it was very interesting to listen to. Interesting conversation. This gentleman, uh, who I'm guessing was a theologian or a a student of eschatology or theology in a broader sense, perhaps even liberation theology, was explaining his views on critical race theory. And he was explaining that critical race theory doesn't argue that race is biological. It argues that race has been constructed by society. And I had to stop and say, hold on a second. So you mean, I'm looking at my hand, literally at this moment, and I'm like, man, my hand is pretty brown. And not just because I'm Hispanic, but because it's summertime and I tan pretty good. So I'm thinking, wow, it seems very biological to me that my skin gets darker in the summer, but I, you know, I have that melanin, that complexion, because of my biology. So how can you say that it's not biological? It's now a choice. You choose to be white. You choose to be black. Of course not. But this is what he's saying. And he's saying that it was white supremacists, which I'm going to call the white majority or white legacy, if you will, because I don't believe it's that they believed that they were supreme. I just believe that there were more of them than anybody else because they came and saw and conquered, right? Vinnie, Vinnie, Vici. that's what they did. They came from England and they had Dutch settlers. And then the slave trade came in and brought people of color or what we now call BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, not to be confused with Tupac. And he says that it's white supremacy that created this class structure and race itself. And I thought that was his understanding of critical theory and how critical theory is taught in law school and it affects policy making in other areas that affect everybody's lives, including school boards, curriculums, our children, the future hiring decisions, the government, how the government, the military, et cetera, do their hiring. And I think the exception that all of us take to this, at least, and I don't want to put everybody in a group, but I know that uh, myself, others that are focused on liberty, others that consider themselves maybe to be more conservative than, than not, the exception that we take is that we don't believe in the oppressor versus the oppressed. And while there may be oppression, at least in the United States, it's not a commonplace thing that's structurally engineered to continue to perpetuate itself. It simply isn't. But he goes on and he talks about critical race theory being opposed to Marxism. And he cites a book called Marxism as a metaphor. Now, I find this one to be particularly interesting because he also makes the case that essentially, and when he says essentially, he means it in the very essence of, that Marx based everything as the means and mode of production and it in of itself was the essence of all things so he went making the case that the shirt that i'm wearing the microphone i'm speaking into the pen that's in my hand the paper that's next to me the computer the cell phone all of that all of these means and mode of production are the essence of marxism now i would argue that all of these things are evidence of a free market now this is the age-old clash between the Marxist and and the free marketeer, and that's okay, I get it. But the point is, he tries to say that there is no inextricable link between Marxism and critical theory, critical race theory, and all the rest of the critical theories that are out there with gender and climate and etc. But yet they're all based on Marxist theory of the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie, the working class that is oppressed versus the ruling class, the oppressor. And in this situation, it's based on race. Now, there's other elements of this, but Randy Weingarten, Jen circleback pasaki Joe Biden, and everybody else that's on the left will try to have you believe that radical religious right, white supremacists, bigots want to erase history. That's the argument that they make, and it's a flawed argument because I don't know anybody. I've been a dad for two decades. And I can tell you, I've been brown for all four decades I've been around. I've experienced racism. My siblings have told me stories about when I was really young, the reason we moved from one apartment to the next when we grew up in Brooklyn was because certain neighbors in the Italian and Irish areas didn't want Hispanics and they weren't as generous. They called us the S word, a very derogatory term for Hispanics in their neighborhood. Now, I've never taken uh, offense to all Italians or all Irish for behaving that way. I realize that there's a bigoted bunch out there and that things are different in the 70s than they were today. I'm not giving them a pass. I'm just saying idiots are going to be idiots. Stupid is a stupid does. That doesn't mean every Irish and Italian person I'm going to meet is a racist. And why? Because life has taught me so. I know plenty. In fact, Mr. Producer, who I see probably more than I see anybody else, he's Irish and Italian American. So... The point I'm making, and it's a simple point that you know already, they're saying we're trying to change history, but yet I have two kids. And if I ask my kids, is it true or false that black people were abused and subjugated to slavery and abuse and uh, mistreatment and death, would that be true or false? And of course, they're going to agree. It was true. Everybody knows there was slavery and it was wrong. Everybody knows there was Jim Crow and it was wrong. So how do we deny that? How does somebody say you're trying to change history? When we literally have a generation of people, myself included, that were brought up under the Martin Luther King doctrine of the beloved community, a colorblind society where we love our fellow man based on the content of their character, based on merit, not based on race or the color of their skin. All of a sudden, that's all erased. Of course, it's erased because Crenshaw, Delgado, and the rest of them, these critical theorists, believe that race is this construct that has to be specifically white versus black, and it can't be black versus white. Blacks can never be racist under the way they've constructed this. Hispanics can't be racist. No one can be racist. Now, every now and again, you'll hear the word colorism. If a light-skinned Hispanic is uh, prejudiced towards a darker-skinned Hispanic, they call it colorism, but it's not racism in and of itself because it just can't be. And that's, that's fine if you want to split hairs that way. But I think racial prejudice is racial prejudice, no matter how you slice it, whether you want to call it colorism or anything else. These things do exist, but they don't exist like they did before. And this is the case, I think, that we make ad nauseum. And I don't want to bore you, so we're going to move past it. But this podcast, I thought, was really interesting because if you listen to it, he's so affable and he's got a soft voice and he's, he really, you know, if if you go into it with your eyes wide shut, you're going to be fooled. Because it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. But you're not stopping to ask those critical questions like, is there an oppressor versus oppressed mentality? Is Marxism at the root of it? And of course it is. So Jen back Pasaki, Randy Weingarten, the rest of the, this group here on the left, they're on the defensive, striking us back for pushing back on an idea we don't like. Jen back Pasaki's at the White House on Friday and she says, no, 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 listen, it's because the president wants kids to learn history. I don't know what you guys are talking about. You guys just want to erase history. Listen to this.
0: I'm wondering what are the president's thoughts on anti-racism curriculum in the classroom?
4: Well, the president believes that in our history, uh, there are many dark moments and there is not just slavery and racism in our history. There is systemic racism that is still impacting society today. And he believes, as I believe, as a parent of children, that kids should learn about our history. Uh, so as a the, the spouse of an educator and as somebody who is continues to believe that children should learn uh, not just the good, but also the challenging in our history. And that's part of what we're talking about here, even as it's become politically charged. Now, of course, if that weren't enough from Jen circle back Pasaki, Silent P, of
2: course, she ain't no Circle Back girl, Randy Weingarten, our least favorite UFT president or whichever president she's the union, she's the president of. She chimes back in making several comments on CNN saying that the founders made sure that only white men could vote. And she goes on to say that, you know, we have to teach American history um, where we look at everything and we examine what our kids have to know and think through what that means. Well, duh, I think everybody teaches it that way. Nobody's teaching history in a, in a a manner where you're not going to think it through, right? Unless you're teaching them that, they, they should not think critically and that we shouldn't have heterodoxy in academia. Of course we should. So then she goes on and she says that, you know, conservative parents want to erase what's happened in our history. Listen to this.
4: What I don't get is that that's a great story for Fox TV. That's a great story for all Americans. And what's happening now is that in this push to try to erase um, what has happened in our history. It is chilling teachers from teaching the fact that we did have slavery. It was uncomfortable. We need to get through it. We need kids to be able to critically think about it and to engage and understand it and get better as a result of it. It is the American experiment that we are trying to teach as school teachers, both the good And the ugly, but the change that we've seen, including having our first African-American president and our first African-American vice
2: president. So, I mean, here you go. They're up against the ropes. And just like this podcast that I was listening to before, where they mentioned that the Reformation only happened because of a change in economics. This is the Marxist view. Or again, that critical race theory argues that race isn't biological. It's a construct of society. And it was white supremacists that created the construct of race. No, I would say white supremacists created the construct of a hierarchy in race where I will beat you and whip you and rape you and uh, do whatever I can to dehumanize you to get you to be free labor. That part I get. And it's a part of our history. It's a very unfortunate, dark part of our history, but a part of our history nonetheless. And this is why we have to push back. Now, Joe Biden. He takes a backseat on everything, but sometimes he does come out and he says, you know what, we're going we're gonna to take action on something. But then he takes action on things that Trump actually did and where what he's doing actually hurts us. And I think we see that with his approach on critical race theory. We also see it with his approach on business. So uh, straight ahead, we're going to talk about what is Biden talking about with respect to business. Don't move a muscle. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America. This is America.
0: He's making podcasting great again. This is America with Rich Valdez.
2: Bienvenido, America. Welcome back. And I said we were going to talk about Biden and business, and we are. Uh, Joe Biden is at the White House, and he's signing executive orders addressing economic competition and fair competition And honestly, he's acknowledging why capitalism has been the world's greatest force of prosperity and growth. It's lifted more people out of poverty than any other economic system. By no means is anything perfect. I'm not preaching a utopia. I'm just preaching the thing works. The free market works. The invisible hand that Joseph Smith uh, talked about in The Wealth of Nations is that you can't see who's moving the market because the market is free. It's kind of like when I was a barber. People came because they liked the haircut, they liked the ambiance, they liked the experience. If you didn't like it, you wouldn't come. If you liked it a lot, you tip a lot. If you didn't like it, you didn't tip and you didn't come back. Rarely happened. Because people, not because I was a great barber, but I was entertaining and people liked the conversation. So they stuck around and it was a good uh, ambiente, it was a great ambiance. Okay, so that's the free market. Biden has strangled and muffled and put a damper on the free market. And now he's coming out saying, well, you know, we're going to use the government to stimulate the free market. Now, listen, Trump used the government by rolling back the government, removing the government from the equation. That's what you got to do. But Biden shuts down the Keystone Pipeline. And then the stuff that he's doing with extending unemployment and stuff like that, this is one that I'm going to get into. But first, I want you to hear what Biden had to say. Check this out.
3: To keep our country moving, we have to take another step as well. And I know you're all tired of hearing me during the campaign and since I'm elected president talk about it. And that's bringing fair competition back to the economy. That's why today I'm going to be signing shortly an executive order promoting competition to lower prices, to lower prices, to increase wages, and to take another critical step toward an economy that works for everybody. The heart of American capitalism is a simple idea – open and fair competition. That means that if your companies want to win your business, they have to go out and they have to up their game. Better prices and services, new ideas and products – that competition keeps the economy moving and keeps it growing. Fair competition is why capitalism has been the world's greatest force of prosperity and growth.
2: Okay, now, so all of a sudden, Joe Biden is a capitalist. When you realize that your Marxist tendencies are failing, you know what? You say, let me jump back into where I've always been, because Joe Biden was never necessarily a Marxist. He's just got his back against the wall with uh, the all-out crazies like AOC and Ilhan Omar and the others that have harnessed the emotion of so many people because they appeal to the fairness that's within each of us to say, you know what? We believe in fairness because, you know, do unto others. Jesus was right. Treat people the way you want to be treated. So we think it's good to be fair, but you can't engineer equity and you can't engineer equal outcomes. You can only present equal opportunities and say, you know what? We all got a shot at this. Not everybody's going to win. And that's fair. But Biden goes on talking about how he's going to address economic competition because he's seeing less and less competition. I wonder why when you're destroying industries, listen to this.
3: By the same token, competitive economy means companies must do all they do to do everything they do to compete for workers, offering higher wages, more flexible hours, better benefits. But what we've seen over the past few decades is less competition and more concentration that holds our economy back. We see it in big agriculture, in big tech, in big pharma. The list goes on. Rather than competing for consumers, they are consuming their competitors. Rather than competing for workers, they're finding ways to gain the upper hand on labor. And too often, the government has actually made it harder for new companies to break in and compete. Hold on, hold on. This is
2: stop the presses. So Biden's saying that yes. And too often, the government has actually made it harder for new companies to break in and compete. What, did he just get a uh, a check in the mail from a PAC related to the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce? Because it's, he sounds rather country club Republican right now. God bless him for it. Because America needs that. We need to stimulate those things. But how can you do those things? You can't. Because the government is artificially inflating the cost of labor. And this is the point I want to hammer home here. Because I think small businesses are so important. And that's why I want to add a uh, a new segment uh, to this is America I don't know how often we'll do it, maybe once a month, uh, whatever, once a week. who knows, but I want to add an eye on American entrepreneurship the eye on American entrepreneurship, a segment about American uh, exceptionalism, an example of a small business owner that's really making it and I want to highlight them and if they want to advertise on this show, I'm happy to do that and even get them a special rate because I think we need to help small businesses that have unique ideas that are meeting a need in society. And I think Biden isn't doing that. He's not helping the economy grow. He's not helping the small entrepreneur, the mom and pop, the barber, the uh, house cleaner that has their own business, somebody who has a pickup truck and a lawnmower that started a landscaping company. He's not inviting that type of industriousness because they're artificially inflating the cost of labor. Right? If you go for coffee in the morning, I got three spots around here. One, Java Day, right on Main Street, Ridgewood Park. The other spot I go to in Bogota, La Hiraldia. That's a Cuban spot, but they open a little later. So if the line's too long in one spot and the other spot, I'll go to Wawa sometimes. It's in Hackensack. All right. So I go to Hackensack. I go to Wawa. I walk in. First thing you see, huge poster. What does that poster say? $800 signing bonus or 500 plus another $300. they are trying to entice people to start working with them. Why are they doing that? I'll explain. Because obviously, if you can make 800 bucks a week working at Wawa and you can make a thousand bucks with the pandemic assistance, whatever, 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 through
0: unemployment. Find your next truck at Woodhouse Buick GMC. No matter where you're heading or what tasks need tackling, there's a premium and capable GMC truck that's perfect for you. Make a statement on the job site out in the town or wherever life leads you in the powerful and distinctive Sierra 1500 or elevate your driving experience in the adventurous and innovative Canyon. Explore our inventory online at woodhousebuickgmc.com or visit our indoor showroom today. Woodhouse Buick GMC. We are professional grade.
2: You're going to take the thousand because it only makes sense that you want a couple more hundred bucks or another 800 bucks a month in your pocket. Everybody's got bills to pay. So when people say that, you know, we're, We're uh, legislating laziness. I don't think people are being lazy because they're opting for more money, especially when their job was ended by the damn government. I think what's happening here is that people are opting for what's best for them and the government is artificially inflating the cost of labor. They're going to force Wawa to raise their rate of what they pay people. Interestingly, that was something they've been wanting to do for quite a while, right? The $15 minimum wage, these pushes for higher um, labor costs. And everybody said, no, but no small business can endure that. This can't happen. And that can't happen because, you know, they're going to end up putting kiosks everywhere and everybody's going to get replaced by a computer or a robot. Okay. Granted, that may be the case, but now they're forcing the hand. It's no longer the invisible hand of the free market. It's not even a free market. Biden's thumb is on the scale. His hand is inside the, the glove of Marxism within the iron fist of government tipping the scale in their favor. They're not even an active participant in this economy. If the government has a role, they're supposed to be rolling things back, scaling back regulation, getting the government out of the equation. Not tipping the scale, but that's what they're doing. So now it's like, hey, look, if, if the competition were between, let's say, QuickCheck and Wawa, and you could say, well, you know what? Wawa's paying $800 a week, but QuickCheck's got me at, you know, a clean thousand bucks. I'm going to go to QuickCheck. Well, that's called competition. And they can compete fairly because it's two similar businesses that are competing for the business. But the government isn't a business. It just takes, it redistributes. This is all they do and all they've ever done. They don't make anything, but they take everything. That's the problem. That's why we can't continue this unemployment the way it is because it's it's a backdoor way to get employers to pay people more. It's messing with the market. And that's why we have so many people that are not working because you can't mess with a free market. You've got to let it do its thing. The hand has to be invisible. It can't be the iron fist of government. Punto y final. Period. The end. But I'll tell you who's allowed to make money. Hunter Biden. That's right. Hunter Biden, he's allowed to sell paintings. He's a painter now uh, in his recovery. And listen, I'm not hating on him. You know, if if I had an opportunity, I would make film. I love making film. I I was, uh, for a little while, I was a producer, filmmaker. I did a little directing when I was with uh, my guy, James O'Keefe. Shout out to O'Keefe. Oh, Kizzle, my nizzle. He just had a birthday recently. Happy birthday. He's out in CPAC. Big shout out to everybody in CPAC, by the way. I didn't make it to CPAC because of some family commitments and some work stuff that I had to do. Um, But CPAC Dallas seems to be Liddy city off the hook. And big shout out to them. Matt and Mercedes Schlapp do a great job. Gordon Chang and the rest of the board at CPAC. Phenomenal. But Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is now selling paintings starting at 75 k Listen, God bless him. I have a good friend who's a very talented painter, Monish Hasnani. He's out in uh, San Diego. Very good. And he makes a living doing graphic design. He's terrific. He's done work in Hollywood and all over the world. And he's very successful. But he, his passion is oil paintings. And he'll do a gallery once a year. And if he makes a few grand, he's super happy because it's starving artist life. It's not easy. Rembrandt, Picasso, Van Gogh, all these people... Made money once they were dead. So they didn't make the money. My point is, it's hard to make it in that lifestyle. It's kind of like being in radio or podcasting. But anyway, bottom line here, Biden's now selling stuff. And the government gets involved and says, well, you know, this is an ethics issue. So to, to make sure it's not an ethics issue, to make sure that we're not really paying Biden or paying Hunter for influence that could, uh, you know, th- what they said that Don Jr. and Eric were doing, Right the guys that have been running these hotels and golf courses and buildings for decades upon decades prior to going to Washington. He gets into this just as his dad is in Washington. Someone with a very questionable past, both in his military service, in his sobriety, all of that stuff. But again, I don't want to hold that against him. Okay, maybe I do a little bit. I just want to acknowledge the facts. How about that? And now he's selling these paintings. What's really interesting here and what I find really striking in this matter is that Jen Pacerco back Pasaki, Silent P of course, she's at the White House on Friday and she says, Look, well, Hunter has a, a system and the White House has a system that's been established that allows for Hunter Biden to sell his work in his profession, uh, and there's reasonable
4: safeguards. Listen to this. Hunter Biden's artwork. Mm-hmm. Did the White House play any role in crafting the sales agreement with the New York Gallery um, to protect the, uh, the purchasers or the ultimate purchasers identity? Well, I can tell you that after careful consideration, a system has been established that allows for Hunter Biden to work in his profession within reasonable safeguards. Uh, Of course, he has the right to pursue an artistic career, just like any child of a president has the right to pursue a career. Uh, But all interactions regarding the selling of art and the setting of prices uh, will be handled by a professional gallerist adhering to the highest industry standards. And any offer out of the normal course would be rejected out of hand. And the gallerist will not share information about buyers or prospective buyers including their identities with Hunter Biden or the administration which provides quite a level of protection and transparency the gallery owner is a private citizen who might not be privy to who might have some interests in purchasing this artwork is the White House doing anything to work with the owner to make sure Um, there's not impropriety there when it is ultimately sold. Well, I think it would be challenging for an anonymous person who we don't know and Hunter Biden doesn't know to have influence. So that's a protection. But
2: that wasn't the end of it. No, no, no. Walter Schaub, former Obama ethics chief, he goes on CNN on Friday and he says that Hunter Biden's art is the perfect mechanism for funneling bribes to Biden. And this is somebody who, who served in the Obama administration. Biden was his vice president. But again, ethics are ethics. It doesn't matter or it shouldn't matter what your partisan beliefs are. Right will always be right and wrong will always be wrong. Listen to this.
1: Well, the thing is, it's just got the absolute appearance that he's profiting off of his father's fame. He's not selling under a pseudonym. He's not waiting till his father is out of office. And he's not selling at any price comparable to what other first-time artists are selling. So the White House should have first made its move to have the president try to talk him out of doing this. And if that failed, they should have gone the opposite direction and asked that the name of buyers be released and pledged to the American people that what They would do is let us know any time one of those buyers got a meeting with an administration official, so that the public could judge whether or not they were getting preferential treatment. The problem is now they've set a precedent for the next president. And even if you happen to trust Joe Biden, what if the next president has the character of a Donald Trump? This would be a perfect
2: mechanism for funneling bribes to that president. Boom! He just dropped some facts right there, and one more just for good measure. Victor Blackwell, he's a host on CNN, saying that Hunter is entering the market at $75,000 to half a million dollars per item. Just doesn't happen unless you're going into the market using Joe Biden's name. Listen to this. Uh, We'll see you at the Hunter Biden auction in September. I'm kidding. I I mean, you are an
1: art collector, people should know. I have a very modest collection. But you have
4: a great eye for it. Thank
1: you. But the idea that an artist enters the market. At $75,000 to a half million dollars. It just doesn't happen unless you're going for the name. And what does that name mean in this context?
2: Now, I'm not saying that Hunter Biden is a crook. I'm saying that even Democrats from the Obama administration and others are saying, look, this might be a little fishy. This doesn't exactly look above board, and it, it has a lot of potentiality for risk. So maybe we should mitigate a different way. Maybe we shouldn't make all of the buyers anonymous. Maybe we should know exactly who these buyers are so that instead of saying, look, we, we, we don't know who they are. How about how about we do know who they are <laughs> so that we know that you're not having extensive dealings with these people? You know, when people said, oh, but Trump, but this and that and the uh, the emoluments clause and this and that, and he bought the hotel. Listen, I took my kids to D.C. in 2012, and at that time, I remember they said, oh, we can't tour the old post office building because rumor has it Trump bought it. 2012. So again, he didn't announce his run for president until 2015. Now, if you want to say this was all one big engineered scheme, maybe. And if it was, it backfired because he ended up losing like $600 million, more than half a billion dollars. But they said that when foreign dignitaries stayed at the Trump Hotel International in D.C., that somehow that this was a bribe and this, that and the other, even though they were paying market rate and the Trump organization reimbursed all of those foreign dignitaries uh, stays, fees, whatever, uh, to the tune of, I don't know, a quarter million dollars or whatever it was. And uh, and donated them. But nobody cares about those parts of the story, right? It's, it's more convenient to just misstate the facts. But all in all, they knew who these people were. Their name was on the bill. It wasn't obscured from public scrutiny. But here we are. Hunter Biden's going to sell things at a half a million dollars a clip. And what do we got? Well, we don't know because we don't know anybody's name. Anyway, the other day I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw a tweet from uh, the homegirl, Isabella Riley. Big shout out to Isabella Riley. She's an anti-feminist uh, social media person and uh, an activist. And she, uh, she wrote, If your dad doesn't have a beard you have two moms <laughs> and I, I laughed that I, I had the delayed reaction I laughed a little bit later too because she she's really good at trolling the feminists and knows how to trigger them and, and she comes up with these witty things and um, right after that I saw this article in The New York Post that I want to talk to you about because uh, it's in that same vein about masculinity and uh, the divide between the left and the right so keep it locked right there don't move a muscle I am rich Valdez this is America this is America.
3: He's got the best head of hair in podcasting. This is America with Rich Valdez.
2: All right, America, welcome back. We're in the final stretch right here. And let me tell you, this is a Sunday edition of This is America. Last night, it was Saturday, and I visited the uh, Whitestone GOP, the Whitestone Republican Club and at Vicky Paladino's campaign headquarters on Francis Lewis Boulevard in Queens. And let me tell you, they're doing such an amazing job. She just won that primary in her district there. District 19 for the New York city council and lots of great people, lots of good Patriots, lots of Hispanic people. They were playing some Elvis Crespo for a little bit, which I always like a little Elvis Crespo because he's like the most famous Puerto Rican merenguero I've, you know, ever. Right. Uh, which is pretty cool. Usually you hear merengue and it's a bunch of excellent Dominican artists, but, um, Elvis Crespo, it's another story. He's a buddy, but, not to be a colorist or anything, uh, but it was really uh, cool to be there and it was a really interesting uh, scenario and there were men and there were women and it was, it was just an interesting divide. And speaking of men and women, this New York Post article that I was talking about, I thought was very interesting. It's an opinion piece by Melanie Notkin. Title, Why Progressive Women Want to Date Men Who Act Like Conservatives. I'll read it again because I thought that was funny. Why Progressive Women Want to Date Men Who Act Like Conservatives. So she writes about her friend Mark. He's 36. She says he's a catch by many New York City standards. He's a good-looking, highly educated, and talented photographer. He's also progressive and participates in protests and gives money to left-leaning causes. Yet Mark is looking for love. He wants to get married and have kids. In a liberal city like New York, swimming with single women, wishing they weren't single, one could only assume that Mark wouldn't have a problem finding a mate. And while he dates and recently had a couple of short-lived relationships, Mark remains single. And he's trying to understand why. Mark says, I'm really open-minded and cool about gender stuff while I'm on dates, but I feel like I'm always walking on eggshells. If I pay for dinner, it signals that I don't value my date as my equal. So I'm super casual about all of it. If she wants to pay for it or split the bill, whatever, that's fine. It works with me. So she tells Mark, despite his best intentions, his egalitarian dating style could be the problem that's holding him back. While some women balk at any hint of traditional male gender behavior, more of them lament at the loss of chivalry. And she's one of them, the author. She finds it attractive when a man plans their first few dates and knowingly walks on the curbside when they're together. She says that it signals that he wants to protect me from passing traffic or errant puddle splashes. Or any other misconception or truth that may come from a woman walking on the outside. And she says, when I was a kid, that her mom told her to always walk curbside, but assumed that the generation of women would think it's too old-fashioned, blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. So now she's really confused. And she says that females have a desire to feel protected and looked after that's built into their DNA. And this is according to evolutionary psychologist Jeffrey Miller, professor at the University of New Mexico and the author of several books. He says, and quote, it's a mismatch between what progressive women say they want and what they actually respond to. Women's instinctive mate preferences have evolved for hundreds of thousands of years for guys who are competent, strong, good providers, good protectors, and happy with a sexual division of labor. Women want decisive men who are also compassionate and thoughtful. In a twenty eighteen study from the Iowa State University, there's some supporting evidence. And it reports that progressive women prefer men who demonstrate more traditional dating behaviors. The women found these men to be quote unquote more attractive because they signaled a willingness to invest by being protective, by being committed, and by providing resources. Now, superstar Gwen Stefani presumably has no doubt, that's a pun here in the joke, wasn't that funny, um, about these findings. On July 3rd, the pop star who was raised in a blue state of California says that when she got married to country-western superstar Blake Shelton, a native of Oklahoma, who's a pro-gun and famous gentleman, that Shelton asked Stefani's father for his blessing before even proposing to her. And they got married in a Catholic wedding chapel that he actually built for his bride. When they asked her what she loved about her betrothed, Blake, Stefani gushed. He's full of love and generosity. So you feel safe. You can lean on him and trust him. End quote. Now, another friend of hers says that he's also this type of old school man and his girlfriend is 36 and she's a typical New York City progressive feminist. Quote unquote. It's what it says there. And she says, or he says, before me, she dated liberal artists and creatives, blah, blah, blah. I work in corporate America. I'm much more conservative and methodical. I pay for stuff. I open doors. And she likes that. I walk on the right side because she has a mild case of scoliosis. He added, the couple's been together for five years. Then there's Carl, 45, fundraising executive who dated a a man. Oh, sorry, not Carl, Carrie, (laughs) my bad. Carrie, 45, dated a man in 2018 with similar left-leaning values and beliefs. But before long... His egalitarian dating attitude and lack of initiative to plan dates led to a breakup. She said, At work, I'm the boss. I have to run the show. Be the cheerleader. Have tough conversations. I make decisions all day long. But at the end of the day, I want my guy to say, Babe, I got this. That sounds normal. But again... That's wrong nowadays, right? There is no normal. There is no identity as a male or as a female, as a man or as a woman because it's so fluid or at least they're uh, constantly and chronically trying to erase and blur this line between men and women, which is probably one of the most natural things that exists is masculinity and femininity. But she goes on. She says her next boyfriend was a conservative who worked in finance. Without fail, he would pick up the place, set the time and then ask if his plan worked for me. She said, it felt great to know that he was taking care of everything. She appreciates a man who opens the door, picks up the check and makes her feel safe, like she can count on him for other things. I'm grateful when a man steps up and acts like a man. It makes me feel more feminine, quote unquote. So, I mean, there you have one example after the next and they keep going and blah, blah, blah. And that's what this ultimately comes down to is this redefinition of manhood, this redefinition of masculinity. And it's right in line with what the left is always doing and redefining things broadly, throughout all of culture, throughout all of society, right? They want to redefine what race is, what we call race. They want to redefine racism. They want to redefine history and then say that we're trying to redefine history. See a trend? This is all about redefinition, hijacking our idiom, our our language, so that we can no longer say, oh, this is that. Well, that's not that or that depends what you mean by the word that, or as Clinton famously said, what you mean by the word is. If men can't be men and women can't be women, how do you have any type of procreation or or heterosexual, heterogeneous relationship? That's the thing. We need heterogeneous, um, heterosexual relationships so that we can continue to have a species. If we don't have a species that will mate and continue, we're screwed. This is why, whether it's Randy Weingarten saying that we're Rewriting history when we're not, we're just stopping them from adding all of this emotional and social element to redefining the history so that it can have one angle, an angle of the oppressor versus the oppressed in their curriculum. Whether it's Hunter Biden getting a pass because they're rewriting laws so that he can figure out a way to do business unlike you and me because he's somehow better. Or whether it's this redefinition of masculinity, saying that masculinity is toxic. That would mean all of us Latino Hispanos out there that believe or have grown up around machismo, we're all toxic. It's all the redefinition of our language and we have to stop it. If we don't stand up for it, no one else will. That's why I always say you have to stand for something because if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. And the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people like you to sit there and do nothing. So now is the time. Now is the time. Do what you got to do. Hasta la proxima. Until next time, America. I am Rich Valdez, and this is America. This is
0: America.